Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello? Hello, can I please speak with Ayad Akhtar? Hey, Paul. Ayad, what a a pleasure to have you on this call. Thank you so much for taking my call. Yeah, yeah, of course. It's really, really good to hear your voice. Tell me, Ayad, how have you been spending these 10 delirious months? I mean, cooking and doing yard work and uh, writing. And has, has this time been been different for you uh, than other times i know that i've spoken to so many writers and this time of the quarantine in a way they uh, they've been preparing for it forever with their whole life mm-hmm. i mean you know we left the city so you know we have a, a place up upstate around hudson and um we we left in march and and didn't know you know that we wouldn't be returning to, to new york so and then ended up giving up our apartment because um too much too much to be paying in rent every month with, and not knowing when we're going back so i guess the big change is that uh, i'm living in the country now and i have an office in a small town called chatham and i drive to work every day past uh cows and sheep and, and farms and whatnot and uh you know that's a big difference from living on uh, the Upper West Side. For sure. Do you do you yeah. like do you like this pastoral life? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I like the idea of it. I like the idea of it uh, quite a lot sometimes. <laughs> the, the, the idea of the pastoral. I, 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 I've always well, thought, that's all it yeah, is yeah. really. It's just an idea, right? It? So. So, you know, um, Ayad, reading Homeland Elegies and thinking about your work, I was brought to a quotation, as you can imagine, Carlo Ginzburg, the great Italian historian, who said something that truly I would love you to react to. He says, a long time ago, I suddenly realized that the country one belongs to is not as the usual rhetoric goes, the one you love, but the one you are ashamed of. Shame <laughs> shame can be a stronger bond than love. Repeatedly <laughs> tested my discovery with friends from different countries. They all yeah. reacted the same way, with surprise, immediately followed by full agreement as if my suggestion was a self-evident truth, claiming that the burden of shame is always the same. In fact, it varies immensely among countries. But the bond of shame, shame as a bond, invariably works for a larger or smaller number of individuals. It's a provocative thought, and I, I... I, I, I sometimes, I sometimes worry that the continentals uh, have a tendency to take a, a deep insight and they and they push it to an extremity of articulation that maybe betrays the original truth of the insight. I, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know that that I don't know that that's true. What he's saying, I think it's a provocative thought, and I think that 
certainly shame is, is an important part of whatever we, whatever belonging we actually have rather than the one that we choose. Um, but I, I do think, I think love matters. And I think, you know, loving where you're from or loving your home or, or feeling nested uh, in, in the dwelling place, in the idea or the, the physical location of, of your home, the commitment to your town or your, to your state. I mean, I feel more like somebody from Wisconsin at times than I do from somebody from America. I feel a, a profound sense of, of kinship and love for my state. Um, and am I ashamed of um, our politics? I don't know. I'm, I don't know that I'm ashamed of it. I think uh, I, 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 feel, I feel that there's a certain inevitability to what's happened in this country. And I'm not so much ashamed of it as I am. Uh, I am surprised that it's taken it's taken us all this long to sort of recognize what's going on. How do you mean inevitable? You know, we've been pulling apart the foundations of collective life for 40 years, and we have been uh, legislating and idealizing individualism for for just as long. And we have been removing the impediments to self enrichment at the cost of our fellow neighbor and our fellow American. I mean, we, we have made it possible ideologically to uh, sell off our national infrastructure for the sake of uh, individual benefit, personal enrichment. That's been going on for a long time. When you start pulling apart the country and its infrastructure and its, its, uh, the ideological pillars that bind people together and you turn everybody into a merchant who is trying to monetize gain and benefit and upsell their neighbor and upsell everybody in their family, you know, you're going to have a country where solidarity has collapsed and where there is no guiding rudiment there's no there's no guiding there's no way to come to any kind of collective agreement about a larger larger good you know so so in a way we have we are reaping what we have sown it's not really the fault of donald trump what's going on you know he really is just the 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 most obscene embodiment of 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 our national affliction i'm not sure that the current charade uh you know provides us an opportunity to even understand what the real problems are i i i do i i do feel encouraged by the fact that people are finally taking some of this stuff seriously and i think it a lot in large part has to do with the pandemic you know I think I would have I, before the pandemic. I, I can imagine that the response to to my book would have been uh, considerably more complicated than it has been. I mean, I've been surprised by how how embraced the 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 deeply dyspeptic analysis of the United States been received, and I think it's been received that way because have seen the 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 rot really that that the that has set into the foundations of the country now. It's interesting because the reception of your work has always been been something to to look at carefully. Um, you, you've said that in, in that that um, disgraced was weaponized in a way. Your play disgraced was cited after Trump's claim about Muslims celebrating nine eleven, and now yeah. and now the pandemic has had an effect on the reception of your work. Do you think that people read it? in a different way? I think so. I mean, again, as, as I say, I think that, that what, what the pandemic made clear to everyone is the profound dysfunction of, of our country at, at a, you know, at an administrative and infrastructural level. And that those, that, that dysfunction is something that was, you know, it's been decades in the making. It's, it's, 
one thing in, in times of prosperity to say we're the greatest country in the world. Nobody does anything better than we do and yes. yada, yada, yada. Yeah. But, but then when, you, when you're up against, you know, a kind of disaster like this, which requires a, a concerted effort and, and, and something we as Americans have completely forgotten, which is sacrifice. Everyone mm. seems to mm. think that meaning Amer- being American means getting what they deserve or getting what rights they have or whatever they think they they are entitled to, and that the United States exists as an entity to sort of support the the fulfillment of their ambitions and their desires. That's not that's not a substantial that's not a substantial uh, uh, foundation for anything like a community or or a nation. So I think that 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 you know when you have countries like Singapore and and places across the planet that are ha- have handled this thing so much better than we have, it just makes you realize you know how the how the rhetoric around exceptionalism, how hollow it really is. So I think it's within that context that it makes it easier to sort of see what what the narrator of Homeland Elegy uh, says he finally started to see about this country. And, and it had nothing to do with being Muslim. It just had to do with finally opening your opening his eyes to what it meant to be American. You know, but in, in, in Homeland Elegies, the narrator at one point says, I'd become a neoliberal courtier, a subaltern aspirant to the ruling class. Do you sometimes still feel that way? Do I feel that way? No, I don't feel that way. I mean, I, I think that my narrator clearly does feel that way at, at a point, And I think there's probably... Uh, a moment in my own career in which I I was a little bit less aware of some of the ramifications of the success that I was enjoying. Right. Um, I, I I'm not sure. You know, I I think it's a it's a fine line. I I'm ideologically not uh, not somebody who, you know, I don't I, I don't fit clearly on either the left or the right side of the aisle. I mean, I think. I once described myself as a uh, altruistic anarchist or something like that, right? <laughs> so, I, I think at, at its core, I'm not sure that as a, as a thinker, or as a writer, as an intellectual, or as an artist, that that having a political point of view is really is really of any significant advantage. I think it it only gets in the way of the ability to sort of see point of view clearly. I don't think you could have. I don't think you could make a case for what Shakespeare's politics were, and if you could, they would probably be conservative. You know, I think that that. He was able to uh, embody every possible point of view and and really not make it clear to anybody what it was that he believed. I think that that's probably a an ideal for me as an artist is to is to sort of be able to identify with points of view without espousing them myself. You know, I was interested by a little. Your your father gave you to the Wall Street Journal and wanted mm-hmm. and wanted you to read it, which reminded me very much of my own father, who gave me a two year subscription to the Economist. Very, <laughs> he was very very ayad. He was so hopeful, and I remember mm-hmm. going back to to visit, and he asked me about the my my reading of the Economist, and I told him it has simply the best obituaries and he was very he, <laughs> he was tremendously dis- disappointed but for you reading, that's very that's very that's very paul holden graber what it, you just said it, it, <laughs> it, well it is it is in fact it is paul holden graber and i i have to say um the obituaries of the economist if you haven't read them they are they are delicious and wonderful but what what did you take in from that experience of making that promise of reading the wall street journal um, as a promise to your father? I think it opened my eyes to the logic of the world. You know, the logic of the world is substantially follows the flow of money. Policy is made by people who understand, you know, return on investment. And that the 
the, the extent to which we are often taught, you know, whether it's in history or humanities or, or, or whatever, uh, that ideas are what really our legislature and they are what shape our, our national consciousness. I'm, I'm not sure that that's as true as people, uh, as we're often taught. And I think what, 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 the, what reading about the world of finance and about the world of money and about it was to understand that policy was being made by people who, who were looking after money because that's really, you know, what it boils down to. It reminds me of a, a wonderful anecdote that Robert Carroll has in his most recent book, uh, Working, and where he's talking about a moment in Lyndon Johnson's career as a young um, congressman and the tone in his letters. Uh, changes that the, the the tone that the people are addressing him with changes from one term to the next. It, one first term he's a junior a junior representative and, and everybody is sort of like nobody's really taking that serious. They were sort of talking down on him, and then all of a sudden overnight, people are now treating him as an elder statesman of of the legislature, even though it's, he's only at the beginning of his second term. And and Caro spent a long time trying to understand what the shift had been, what had changed, and it turned out what had changed was that Johnson had been able to convince a major donor in Texas to stop giving his money to another representative, funnel all of his giving through Johnson's office, so that Johnson determined who would be getting money for what within within his caucus. And so suddenly the flow of money was coming from Lyndon Johnson, and the tone in the letters changed, standing in the legislature changed. It's very telling that it really does all boil down to the message of pride and prejudice, and it's the message of you know, the Wall Street Journal. How interesting. You know, I recently David Graeber died, and he said something that I think is so interesting, which I'd again, love you to comment on. He said, debt promise corrupted by mass and violence. That's interesting. It's it, it promise corrupted by mathematics and violence. I think that's a very interesting perspective. Um, and I think that there's a lot of truth in that. I, I, um, I, I'm not sure that I would want to, I'm not sure that I would want to give it that sort of moral valency. I, I think mm-hmm. that, that that is certainly true in some instances. Uh, and sometimes the more blood you're willing to countenance shedding, the more money you can make, the more your debts are worth. Um, but I think that the amorality of, of money is an important dimension. To, you've always got to account for that, that, that it, it isn't moral. We are bringing the morality to, to the world of money. I'd like, I like to think of debt in a different way. I was at a noodle bar before the, the pandemic began uh, late last year, and I was sitting at, at the bar uh, there was a fellow sitting next to me. He was an Asian, Asian-American fellow in his early 30s. And we got to talking. He asked me what I did. I told him I was a writer. And what do you write about? Well, sometimes I write about finance. He said, oh, that's interesting. I uh, run the real estate holdings, uh, the real estate holding portfolio for one of the sovereign wealth funds in the Middle East. I won't mention which country because I don't want to identify who he is. But one of, one of the sovereign wealth funds of, of one of the oil-rich nations in the Middle East, he ran the portfolio of real estate holdings for them. And we started talking about debt. And he said, you know, debt is the most important. It's the most important thing for people to understand in the 21st century. This is what he's saying. He said, a lot of times people talk about the haves and the have-nots, the folks who, the 1% versus the 99%. And the, I really think of it in terms of people who understand debt and people who don't. Debt is how we have come to understand in an economic society and one where all of the imperatives are about are about return on, on investment. They're all about monetization. They're all about growing the economy, this abstraction that has become our guiding fiction, our guiding myth. In a society like that, 
pro- the process of time itself, there's a technology to account for time. And that technology is debt. So understanding debt and understanding how to use debt is really the thing that gives you an advantage, gives you a position, gives you being. It's, there's almost an ontological quality to this in, in a society where ontology is co-equal economics. Let's talk about different forms of debt, the debt you feel towards certain writers. Um, mm-hmm. you, you know, in, in preparing to speak with you, Ayad, I did something that I was very frightened to do because I, I'm very interested in the, the relationship between aging and taste and what happens with loves we've had 20, 30 years ago for certain works, certain movies, and then we revisit them and don't find in them what we so loved 20 years ago. This was right. not the case when I watched again in preparation to speak with you. I watched again my dinner with Andre, which mm-hmm. which struck which struck me incredibly deeply, and I found it I found it very persuasive. So, if if you could tell our listeners a little bit about the importance of that movie for you, and also your experience with with Grotowski and the 16 hours a day you worked with mm. him, and what were those 16 hours a day made of? How did you mm. how did you spend that year you spent with him, and why did you stop? Um, so thank you for for that. I uh, Andre, uh, you know, I I encountered my dinner with Andre as a as a senior in college, and it you know blew my mind. <laughs> Um, I was I, I was fully fully invested in the process of trying to figure out what was it, what was a meaningful life and what would it possibly mean to, to make choices that were going to uh, that were going to reveal uh, uh, a way of living that that, that felt valuable and, and meaningful beyond uh, beyond you know accomplishing something and already at twenty that was uh, twenty one that was something that was. And, and, and you know that movie is just seduction as well as a kind of um, as well as a kind of uh, a, a movie filled with all kinds of wisdom. And so that that movie led to an encounter with Andre, but it also led to a kind of obsession with Grotowski. I spent my senior year in college uh, studying uh, Grotowski's work, and I wrote my senior paper on him, and spent a lot of time talking to people who had worked with him and seeking them out in New York and elsewhere. And um, so when Andre showed up at campus sort of late uh, my, in my last semester, you know, it was kind of coincidence, but I, I, I knew that I was, I wanted to ask him if there was any chance he would, you know, facilitate an introduction to Grotowski because I wanted to work with him. And, and I knew that um, Andre would have some question about why I would want to do that. And I also knew that uh, there was an answer to that question that would, that would at ease. And, and it went as, as follows. Andre asked me, said, well, uh, yes, of course, I, I know yours and I can call him, but what, why do you want to work with him? And, and I said, well, if Gurdjieff were alive today, I would want to work with Gurdjieff. But Gurdjieff is dead, so I want to work with Grotowski. <laughs> And I knew that that was it was a kind of a code mm. that was going to open that was going to open the door. And lo and behold, two weeks later, I got a call from Andre, and uh, he said, "I've spoken to Yerzy. He's waiting for you. Get on a plane." So I got on a plane and I went to Italy. And I spent uh, spent a year working with him. And so, just to sort of explain the coded comment there yes, about Gurdjieff, please. Gurdjieff is a was a a Greek Armenian uh, philosopher mystic. Started uh, a kind of spiritualist movement, I suppose you could call it, but had, a, had an institute in France in Fontainebleau uh, where he was 
training and working with people to develop uh, their capacities to be present, if you will, for lack of a better way of putting it. Uh, some of the work that Andre talks about in My Dinner with Andre was inspired, that Grotowski was engaged with, was, he was inspired by Grotowski. And I had spent enough time studying Grotowski to recognize that and to know, to learn that. So that's why I knew that that, that code would work. And essentially, in working with Grotowski for a year, what it was is it called an attempt at a permanent education in the sense, in the sense of, you know, he, he had spent his whole life teaching actors how to inhabit ex- of extreme, uh, ex- extreme emotional expression and extreme sta- states of in- inner being, you know, sort of whether it was ecstasy or declivitous sadness or what it, the extremes of human experience. He was teaching actors how to hold those experiences in their bodies and express them basically to be in those places. And so in a sense, I think at the late 60s, he said something like, uh, we figured out how to live on stage. We figured out how to be fully alive on stage in so many different emotional states. Now the question is, how do we take this technology and how do we apply it to life? How can we be more alive in life? And so at the end of his career, what Grotowski was engaged in was really using these very extreme acting and vocal and physical techniques to expand the compass of possible experience in groups, young, you know, young actors. I was really a young actor, aspiring director at the time, and working 16 hours a day on, on the imagination in the body, on emotional emoticity, on the ability to articulate and express emotion vocally and physically. And all of those things, you know, his surmise was that if that training was undertaken well and, and thoroughly enough, that it would be a capacity you could carry into your life, that it was something that wouldn't ever leave you. And I think there's probably some truth to that. I think I developed uh, uh, an emotional awareness and an ability to suffering consciously and to uh, to brook certain uh, intense and extreme emotional states that, that has served me well as a writer. I think that part of the emotional intensity of my work comes from my ability to do those things, which goes back to my year uh, working with Grotowski. Your year with, with Grotowski, which, which, you, which came to an end, you stopped. Yeah. It was perhaps I had too much, <laughs> too much uh, and, and in a sense, uh, the, the conversation between um, Andre Gregory and, and Wally Shawn in, in the film is the too much of it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think you know there were there were particular um, particular circumstances around my year in in Italy with Grotowski, which which meant that I wasn't going to stay for more than a year because I was at the tail end. Uh, he had been working with a, um, a Haitian uh, voodoo priestess initiate uh, for for twenty five years named Maud Robar, extraordinary extraordinary woman who Andre Malraux had written an article about in uh, in in uh, France years earlier and sort of Grotowski had gotten interested in her and, and uh, in some of the work she was doing where she was bringing performance, ancient performance techniques into a kind of performance art that, um, that, that Grotowski, that was just how Grotowski found her. And um, she was an extraordinary woman. I was involved working with her and Grotowski and their relationship was really kind of at a breaking point toward the end of the time that I was there. They'd been working 25 years and she, it was time for her to move on. She didn't want to work with him anymore. He would he'd had it with her. So there wasn't really an, a structure or an infrastructure for me to stay on, even if I really wanted to. 
But that said, I'm not sure I wanted to, and I'm not sure it was because of the surfeit of presence. Right. It was, it, it was really more that, that I started to feel somewhat uncomfortable with the, uh, the nature of the, of the social hierarchies that existed within the group and within the work. You know, I think it was fine for a year to be apprenticed in the way that I was, but I think that beyond that, it was time for me to sort of set out and do my own, go my own way. I, I, I know I had noticed uh, over the years, <clears throat> I mean, over the two, two, three years that I had spent studying Grotowski and then working with him, that people who spent too much time around him tended to do work that looked like his work. And that, that I did not want to be somebody who was an acolyte of Grotowski and who was trying to find, again, some form or some aesthetic that was, you know, a, that was an Eastern European, you know, Polish you know, Polish warrior thing. And I, I'm Muslim kid from suburban Milwaukee. There's no, there's no, there's no overlap. You right. know what I mean? Right. right. So, so, so it was, time, it, it felt intuitively that it was time for me to go. And, and there was also not really any opportunity. Maud and him had this, you know, huge falling out. So it, it all, it all made sense. It was the right time for me to go, but I'm, I'm, you know, I'm so grateful for the work that, that I did with him. And I, I really do think that he's a handful. Maybe there's two or three people I've met in my life who have set the bar of what's possible, of what I've seen. And, and he was certainly one of them. Well, so I, spending I, so, as much time as I did with him in my, in my twenties, uh, you know, early twenties was, was very formative. I'd be curious who the other two are. And perhaps by asking you this question, we will get to them. It's your reaction to reading Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses, where you say, and I found this extraordinary comment, Ayad, you said it's a book filled with so many unthinkable thoughts. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. what other works and perhaps what other people have had that hold on you of unthinkable thoughts. Wow. Well, what a, what a, what an extraordinary um, question. You know, I think that it, it would, it, one, it would have to be, you know, circumscribed within, within the sort of various fields of, of, of study that I've been involved in. And I think that, you know, um, Certainly, Rushdie, unthinkable thoughts for me as a late adolescent coming out from under the the shadow of my own childhood faith. And so the unthinkable thoughts were of a earth-shattering nature because he was really questioning the foundation of my own, what I've been brought up to believe. Um, you know, Dostoevsky done that too in Karamazov for me. It was a, a book that I discovered about the same time. Um, and then, you know, I mean, along the way, all kinds of, you know, folks who have unthinkable thoughts when, you know, studying the psychoanalytic tradition and really sort of encountering the deeper current of, uh, of, of the attempts to articulate the human in Winnicott or, or some of the sort of borderline psychotic, you know, offerings on display in, in Jung's work, all of which, you know, reshape what we imagine or think could be possible as human beings. And, you know, It's really hard to, the, the collective discourse, the space of collective thinking, the sort of the, the mass of what Heidegger would call the they self, you know, doesn't, doesn't allow for a huge amount of room for some of these more are, are articulated and deeply nested points of view on reality, which I think, you know, are instances of, of human freedom. You know, I, I think it was Foucault who once said that uh, we have yet to understand the dimension of freedom represented by madness. You know, there's all kinds of people who have unthinkable thoughts, but I think, you know, as far as 
the Rushdie goes. That was that was that was one that hit me at a particular moment in my life because of my late adolescence. And and another another writer who hit you and perhaps who's still with you, and perhaps you still feel his influence in some way and a debt towards him is Fernando Pessoa. Yes, I, I spent um, after after working with Grotowski a few years after that, I started writing a novel. Uh, which, uh, you know, extended to a thousand, you know, not quite a thousand pages almost, which is inspired by the book of disquiet. I mean, it was, you know, my, my, my offering was really, but, um, yeah, no, I, I, I so it's, there's a whole generation, a whole sort of cohort of, of modernist writers who, who I aspired to write like for a very long time until I realized, you know, that was pretty foolish. Ayad, in, in closing, I, I'd like you to, to comment on the extraordinary epigraph which serves as a coda to Homeland Elegies by Toni Morrison, where she says, mm -hmm. when the theatricality, the entertainment value, the marketing of life is complete, we will find ourselves living not in a nation, but in a consortium of industries and wholly unintelligible to ourselves, except for what we see as through a screen. Well, I mean, pretty self-evident, Paul. She wrote that in the early 90s, well before the invention of anything like an iPhone. And she foresaw Guy Debord, 30 years before her, right. the structure of modern society and what what had fundamentally changed. I mean, I think it's incredibly informative to go back and read the Society of Spectacle, yes. which, which Guy Debord wrote, in, I can't remember if it was 65 or 68, which really outlines almost with a kind of un unfathomable granularity the texture of our lives and what we think of as a kind of advent of a new new kind of being, a new kind of social being initiated by the technology is something that he foresaw, he and Marshall McLuhan, just on the basis of the kind of consumerist advertising televised culture that had already started to exist in the 1960s in the West. Also, it's a remarkable, there's a remarkable through line from, from, from Gita Board to Tony Morrison, Steve Jobs. And and it is and it is a it is not a salutary one and it's one that should give us pause if we have any humanist aspirations. Or Thoreau, who said that men have become tools of their tools. Ayad, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you. I could go on for a very long time. <laughs> But pleasure's thank, mine always, Paul. Well, it's a two-way street. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Paul. And take good care of yourself. Bye bye. You too. To support this show and Dublab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com/support.